The Interchange is brought to you by PG&E. Did you know that 20% of EV drivers in the U.S. are in PG&E service territory in Northern California? But the electric revolution is not going to happen with single drivers alone, so PG&E is helping to electrify corporate fleet vehicles. Get in touch with PG&E's EV specialists to find out how you can take your transportation fleet electric. Find out more at pge.com gtm. Support for The Interchange also comes from Wonder Capital. By now, you know that Wonder can finance your commercial or community solar projects, and you know they can do it at lightning speeds. But did you know they now have lower rates and can finance all kinds of projects? Head over to wondercapital.com gtm to experience the Wonder difference. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media. I am Stephen Lacey, a contributing editor at GTM. Welcome to the show. This week, what would a truly bold presidential plan to decarbonize the economy look like? Democratic candidates are offering up their visions. Elizabeth Warren is focusing on banning fossil fuel extraction on public lands and using the military to counter climate threats. Beto O'Rourke is looking to executive action, a broader extension of what Obama tried to do. Joe Biden? Well, we aren't sure what his middle ground plan will actually be, but it sure did get a lot of angry responses on social media when it was teased. But then there's Washington State Governor Jay Inslee. Now this guy's got a plan. He just released his second piece of that climate plan. It's more of a manifesto called the Evergreen Economy. It's a culmination of a decade and a half of Inslee's thinking, writing, and policymaking on climate. It it was such a good read, we decided to devote a whole episode to talking about it. And with me to do that is my evergreen co-host, Shale Khan. He's Managing Director at Energy Impact Partners. Hello, Shale. How are you? Hey, Stephen. I'm great. How are you? Oh, just dandy and feeling pretty good after taking a second read of Jay Inslee's climate plan. I feel fired up. Like, finally, there's something that feels ambitious and doable. Um, Now, we want to mostly stay away from presidential politics unless we can find a wonky element to it. And um, that's what this plan offers. You know, you read this plan before I did. And when you did, you you sent me a link and you were like, maybe we should devote an episode to it. So what drew you into it? So I think this is a plan that was basically written for climate and or energy policy wonks. It's 35 pages long, first of all, which, you know, I just don't, and it's, you know, written in single spaced block text. So it's, it's deep. Um, I don't think we're going to see that from any of the other candidates. And as you noted before, this is just part two, right? This follows a first part of Inslee's plan, which is basically a federal clean energy standard. And there are something like three or four more parts coming. We don't actually know how many. But so this one on its own, even setting aside all the others, just goes a lot deeper than you see elsewhere. And so that means there's just a lot more to it. And thus, I think it's worth dissecting a little bit. Yeah. Inslee's the climate guy. Did you ever read his book back in 2007, Apollo's Fire? I did not. I heard a lot about it, but I never read it. You? Yeah. It, yeah, it was quite good. I remember when it came out and it was like he, he, he was one of the first people to come out really strong on these issues. It was around the time that Al Gore started picking up a lot more attention. But Inslee came out with like a concrete plan and no one else was doing it at the time. And so now here we are 12 years later, and we've got a plan that I think meets the challenge of the day and is clearly the most detailed of any candidate. So let's be careful here. 
we're obviously kind of glowing about this plan because it's so unique, but we're not endorsing the candidate here. Like we're we're not endorsing any Democratic candidate. Right. This is not an endorsement, but it is a dissection. I think this is consider this high school biology class. Yeah. Or like a high school civics class instead of biology. So, so one of those. <laughs> I mean, the other thing, by the way, that I think is unique about this plan that you know you're not going to find in basically anybody else's plan is that often throughout the plan, so there's 28 individual policy initiatives grouped into five buckets in this 35-page plan. Um, and in many of those individual buckets, it references things that Inslee has actually implemented as governor of Washington that are smaller versions of the same thing. So it draws upon, not in every case, but in many cases, it draws upon a real track record and proves that some of the stuff that he's proposing is doable, at least at the state level. Um, that's something that you're just not going to see from from many of the other candidates, in part because you know very few of them are governors who have such a track record to speak to, but it does lend this sort of credibility that that I think strengthens the fact that he's proposing so many different things. Okay, then let's break down the plan and cover it in a few ways. First up, let's just talk about what it does and whether it meets the challenge that we have in front of us. Then let's talk about maybe our favorite parts of the plan or things that are missing. And when I think about the parts that are attractive to us, I want to either pick a policy specifically or just broader framing. And then we can move to the wonkiest piece of the plan that speaks to us. What makes this different? What makes this stand out as an issue that Inslee is clearly thinking differently about? So uh, what does this plan do, Shale? What are some of the top line figures? So high level, as I, as I mentioned before, right, this isn't the entirety of Inslee's climate plan because there already is a separate one that talks about a, a federal clean energy standard um, and then there are more coming. This one, I think, you know, the way to encompass it is it basically um, takes a lens to pretty much every major federal agency and then tries to figure out how to reorient it around climate change. The high level figures that they want everybody to cite are it's a $9 trillion investment over the course of a decade. That would be about $300 billion a year from government matched by $600 billion a year from the private sector. Um, that would, they think, create 8 million jobs. Um, it's in some ways aligns actually very well with the ideas of the Green New Deal. And interestingly, I thought the plan actually opens up by talking about the New Deal, as the Green New Deal is based on, but doesn't actually mention the Green New Deal itself. But the big difference between what's in this plan and the Green New Deal is that the Green New Deal is a you know sweeping set of generalities um, and ideals. This is very specific policies. It's you know like I said, twenty eight individual policies that he would implement to sort of get to the place that the Green New Deal wants to end up. Yep. So some other goals outlined in the report are net zero emissions in the electricity sector by 2035, 100% of all new new buildings, not 100% of all buildings, 100% of all new buildings to be net zero by 2030. And then he wants to double investment in public transit and massively boost charging infrastructure for electric vehicles. What stood out to you from the plan when you read it? Like either a specific policy or the way it was framed? So I think the high level thing that was interesting to me is how deftly this plan navigates the sort of 
bridge between being really, really ambitious, which this is, and also pretty practical. Um, there's, there's nothing that I saw within this plan that seems like it would be impossible to implement. There's, there's not a lot that would require, um, congressional approval. There's definitely some things like that, but there's a fair amount that could be done from a federal standpoint. It's all based on existing programs or existing agencies. You know, it's just, uh, it's born out of clearly a lot of detailed thought about how you would actually implement this stuff. And at the same time, it also, I think, does a pretty good job of tackling the thornier issues that you face when you raise plans like this. I'll give you one good example of that to me, which is carbon capture and sequestration, right? Which Green New Deal, I think, uh, at least in the spirit of it, would be fully against. I think lots of folks who are in favor of climate change mitigation want to leave a door open for, for CCS. The way that this plan addresses CCS is pretty interesting. It basically, um, in the section on industrial emissions, it says what we've been saying for a long time, and many, many people say when they look at how to decarbonize the economy, which is industrial emissions are going to be very, very difficult to get down significantly, let alone to zero. And so if you do want a truly net zero clean energy economy anytime in the next few decades, you may not be able to do that in the industrial sector without some form of carbon capture and or direct air capture. So it acknowledges that in the plan, which I think is somewhat rare for the, you know, very, very progressive clean energy plans and um, decarbonization plans that you see out there. But it also then says basically, I mean, I think I'm paraphrasing here, but it basically says, look, you may need CCS for that sector in particular, but we don't like it. We think there are other problems with continuing to use fossil fuels and doing CCS. So we want to support it specifically for that purpose, but we don't want to rely on it as a crutch. And, you know, I, it's just, I think it's, it's well-framed. You can agree or disagree with that, but at least it addresses that problem head on. Well, I think your example of how Inslee highlighted CCS perfectly encapsulates what is attractive to me about this report. It doesn't rely on traditional political lines or tropes that a lot of candidates use. Sure, we believe in staying in the Paris Agreement. Oh, sure, I support the Green New Deal. Um, it kind of borrows from some of that language, but it creates something legitimately new and inspirational and borrows from real-world experience. Um, it doesn't get into this false dichotomy between innovation versus deployment. It uses just really straightforward language to say, here's the stuff we can do right now. Here's the stuff we can do a bit later. And it doesn't fall into this trap of saying like, I want to create a nationwide smart grid. Uh, let's create smart cities. It is, again, a legitimately detailed plan that avoids a lot of common cliches. And if you look at someone like Beto O'Rourke's plan, he sets up the issue in a fairly negative way. It's all about the climate catastrophe, how terrible the situation is. And Inslee takes a very different tact. He says, here are all the inspirational ways that we can transform the economy. So that was really attractive to me and I think resonates with a lot more people. The economic opportunity piece was truly unique and I think kind of inspirational. What about the, I mean, the obvious... Uh concern about this plan that I think many folks will probably have is that the thing that doesn't include is a pay for like 
there's $9 trillion of investment. It's not entirely clear to me based on the plan, whether Inslee is proposing that that $9 trillion pays itself back um, or whether it's money that's just worth spending. I mean, this, this plan is a everything but the kitchen sink plan. And in this case, the kitchen sink is a price on carbon. It does not include a price on carbon, but it includes basically everything else you could possibly come up with, especially when you compare it with or add it to the um, the previous plan that has a, a clean energy standard. So does it bother you at all that that's not addressed here? So everything but the kitchen sink, who's going to pay for the contractor to install all this stuff? Uh, does it bother me? No, it doesn't bother me necessarily, but it's if there were one major criticism of this report, it's that there's not a clear indicator of how he's going to pay for all this. And I presume it's going to be through taxing carbon indirectly or directly. I mean, you just, you have to. But it seems like there's a bit of a loophole here. And this is just my interpretation. Now, he leans very heavily on existing government programs that can be scaled up. And these are programs that are part of the normal budgeting process, they're paid for every year. And it feels like he's saying, hey, we've got these tools already in place. Here's how we can modify them to support cleaner development. And that feels like uh, maybe it opens the possibility up of funding some of these programs without having to put in place, you know, a 40 to $100 a ton carbon tax. Well, first of all, I'm not sure I agree that, look, there are a lot of things that are in the plan that would be done with existing programs. I think there are a bunch that would be new programs as well out of existing agencies. So like we don't have a, a federal green bank right now. And he's talking about capitalizing a $90 billion federal green bank. Same thing with like next generation rural electrification initiative. That would be a, a totally new initiative. You could say the same for these, like the clean water programs there. There's a, a big, I mean, we'll talk about this because it's near and dear to my heart, but a, a big proposed investment in transmission at the federal level. Um, you know, a whole bunch of new, this GI bill for impacted coal workers and coal communities. That's all new stuff. I think it's not like just scaling up existing programs, but nonetheless, it is true that it, you know, none of this includes a carbon tax. I think the sort of interesting question there is, is Inslee coming up with the broadest suite of policies that you can come up with to address climate change in lieu of a price on carbon, recognizing that a price on carbon is going to be hard to get done politically, or is this a buildup, right? Because we know that there's however many more, two, three, four more planks to this platform yet to come. And I'm wondering whether this is a strategic rollout, which which starts with a federal clean energy standard where there's a lot of momentum behind that in the first place uh, at the state level. There's all these states passing it and a bunch of utilities voluntarily committing to it. Then it gets into this, you know, this plan that we're talking about now, which is super detailed and lays out all the individual policies that would have to occur and all the different programs that would get created. And then it'll sort of culminate at the end with, and we're going to do this all by putting a price on carbon. I, I don't know which of the those two things is what's happening, but I'm curious to see. My God, Jay Inslee, the master of suspense, the Stephen King of decarbonization. <laughs> yeah. That's the other thing about this plan, by the way, which is that, I mean, it's, it's written for people like us who are going to want to dig into all these individual details. I wonder... I wonder what the um, layperson who maybe the layperson who who does care about climate change, but obviously isn't going to get into like what ARPA AG is, <laughs> um, how, how much this will break through to them. 
to me, it's not about whether individual voters support it. It's all about how much he influences other candidates. And Dave Roberts over at Vox wrote a great review of the climate plan. And his take was this. This plan should set the foundation for all the other candidates. They should basically all commit to this plan and then say, hey, if I win, I'm going to bring Inslee on and he's going to be my energy secretary or my climate czar or whatever, and we're going to implement this plan. That, to me, feels like its biggest impact potentially. Yeah, I thought that was an interesting idea. Um, It seems unlikely that the you know, and Dave Roberts alluded to this too. It seems unlikely that any of the candidates are just going to cede the issue to Inslee. But I mean, based on depth of understanding, you could certainly make a good case for it. Well, you mentioned ARPA AG, and that is one of the really wonky policies that only people like us would find titillating. We're going to get into that. But first, let's talk about our supporters of this show. You know, corporate Fleet vehicles are getting electrified at a pretty rapid pace. Electric buses are starting to take hold. Big corporations are recognizing that they have to make their vehicles electric. And PG&E is doing the best that it can to help electrify school buses and transit buses, delivery vehicles, all sorts of vehicles for municipalities and corporations. So if you're in California, you're in PG&E service territory, you can get the financial, logistical, and construction support for electrifying your fleet. Get in touch with one of PG&E's EV specialists to learn more at pge.com gtm. And if you're looking to pair that EV charging with some solar, our other sponsor, Wonder Capital, can help you out. They help with all kinds of solar projects. Community solar with 100% residential offtake in New York. Hawaii solar with storage. California Community Choice Aggregation Solar. There are so many different kinds of solar projects, and Wonder doesn't just support vanilla commercial scale projects. It's doing all kinds of stuff. And if you need support for your project, head on over to wondercapital.com slash GTM to work with folks who will understand your unique project for what it truly is, financeable. So, Shale, what is the um, wonkiest piece of this plan that spoke to you? Um... Highest on the wonk scale in my mind, but that I thought was just, I guess, indicative of how deeply thought out this plan is, it was the establishment of a quadrennial industrial review. Um, just so few people are going to understand why that matters, but it's, I think it's a good idea, right? So we have, we have this quadrennial energy review already that DOE runs. Um, and it's this just like big omnibus, uh, review of our energy sector and major issues and how to tackle the big problems within it. So this would be establishing something similar that would be run by the Department of Commerce um, in coordination with DOE and the Department of Defense. And what the goal would be is to identify sound industrial policies um, that would support and continue to sustain American competitiveness and industrial growth with a climate change lens. So it alludes to things like critical materials and rare earth elements, domestic production, all this kind of stuff. So, you know, it it wouldn't solve any of the problems itself, but it, you know, it shows that they're thinking about, look, if we're going to do all this, then we have to deal with rare earth minerals, um, which are used in, in a bunch of different clean energy technologies, or we have to deal with where's all the mining. It doesn't say this, but You know, I think they're alluding to like, where does the mining of cobalt take place? And how do we make sure that there's sufficient cobalt outside of child labor in the Democratic Republic of the Congo? And, you know, those kinds of things. So 
I don't know. It's the <laughs> um, putting a quadrennial industrial review in a presidential campaign platform really drove home to me the thing that makes this policy platform unique. There's no better way to wonkify a word or phrase than to sandwich it between quadrennial and review. Yeah, that's probably right. Uh, what about you? Mine was definitely ARPA AG. This is modeled after. ARPA-E, the Advanced Research Projects Agency for Energy, which is modeled after DARPA, the military R&D program that gave us technologies like the internet. The agriculture sector is so difficult. We've barely begun to tap decarbonization potential there, and it's going to get more important as we figure out this electricity stuff. So he outlined a few different technologies like carbon sequestration in soil, um, how to get agricultural operations to net zero energy, how to figure out net zero waste cost effectively. And these are the big challenges that no other candidate, and, and quite frankly, just a lot of people in this industry are not tackling or not able to tackle. So having a government agency that is working closely with the agricultural sector to figure out these really hard technology problems was very attractive to me. And I thought it was funny because uh, it's modeled after ARPA-E, which is modeled after DARPA. It's this kind of iterative agency. And, and that paired with this proposal for the, the U.S. Department of Agriculture service to help with ecosystem management felt like a one-two punch of truly starting to grapple with the agricultural sector, which again gets ignored a lot. So, so I liked that. Mm -hmm. I'll add one more because we've talked about it recently. So the fact that he addressed it was near and dear to my heart, which is investment in transmission. Um, the proposal includes the idea for a transmission investment tax credit, low cost financing through federal programs, anticipatory construction of transmission capacity to areas with big clean energy queues. I mean, that's actually, that's kind of wonky, but but a smart way to do it, like look at the interconnection queues, figure out where there are a lot of, or permit queues and figure out where there are, where there's a ton of pent up renewable energy projects waiting for transmission or waiting for approval and then build transmission out to those. So it, it wants $15 billion in annual spending on new transmission for the next decade through 2030. Um, you know, I don't think all of this would be possible at the federal level, but certainly can do a lot because it crosses state lines and, and FERC has jurisdiction. My final point on this wonk factor is the range of tech outlined in the report. He mentions underground thermal storage, solar water heaters, electric water heaters, district heating, ground source geothermal, biogas, carbon sequestration. So there's a clear understanding of the wide range of technologies out there that perhaps have been ignored or need more holistic support than the conventional solar and wind renewable energy technologies that are have made so much progress. Though not to wade into this minefield, but nuclear. You, yeah, you nuclear, know what's notably say? missing is nuclear. Yeah. No mention. And it's it's not mentioned in this report, nor is it mentioned in his 100% clean energy plan for the electricity sector specifically, which mm -hmm. I, I, I think that's actually a big punt that should be recognized. I'm not quite sure why he ignored it completely you have to i mean it's not because he didn't think of it right what we know for mm -hmm. sure is that uh his team has thought of 
almost everything here. So it's obviously got to be because they don't want to deal with the political ramifications and the infighting that talking about nuclear results in. But I think you you can't be this detailed and completely avoid that question. Well, I think the omission probably speaks to his stance on nuclear then. Right. I mean, if he's going to put this much thought into all these other sectors and then just completely ignore nuclear, I think we can assume that he's probably not a supporter of nuclear. Probably not. But I mean, again, the way that he handled carbon capture and sequestration would have been a a pretty reasonable way to handle nuclear as well. Right. You could easily say, I think uh, uh, there are many folks who would say something like, we need to keep the existing nuclear fleet running as long as possible because it is zero carbon generation. Um, But, you know, I don't think it's going to be cost effective or, you know, it's not the best solution for the future. So I'm not going to put out any policies that are going to actively promote nuclear. And then you can debate that, but at least say, you know, let's let's not retire this stuff early or say you want to retire it early. But either way, you got to address it. Let's try a quick back and forth here and get our rapid thoughts on what's in this report that we haven't covered yet. Uh, Turn to page four, and there you'll see listed almost every idea and program in this report. Let's just randomly pick something and get the other person's reaction. So I'll go first. The uh, GI Bill for impacted workers and coal community reinvestment. I think you have to include something like that in a program that is this broad and that would so clearly impact these communities. You know, I think it, um, I don't, realistically, I think we haven't actually figured out how to solve this problem. You, you try to make it such that we retire coal as quickly as possible. There are lots of folks who get impacted by that and entire regions that get impacted by that. And there have been a bunch of different programs that have been attempted to retrain workers and things like that. And I think to somewhat mixed results at this point. So I think it has to get included. I'm not expert enough to be able to tell you whether this is the right way to do it, but that's certainly like an absolutely necessary component. Well, the worker training piece is hard because historically government worker retraining has not been all that effective. That doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. It's extremely important, but I think we've seen mixed results throughout history. What is important and what I think more directly relates to the GI Bill is giving people who have put their bodies and lives on the line, in this case to mine coal, giving them access to health care long term, um, giving them a pension long term. And even if we don't massively restructure these coal communities, we can at least recognize their contribution historically to getting us reliable energy in this country and do something for the sacrifice that they've made. I actually really like the way that Inslee talks about this. He does talk about it as a sacrifice, and he's very conciliatory. It's not like, hey, let's just shut down coal plants. He's actually recognizing the history and the contribution of people in these mining communities, which I think is really important. All right, my turn. $90 billion federal green bank. (sighs) Do the green banks work that well? I mean, I hear mixed results in states. Well, nothing is the answer, obviously. But no, I think you're right. I think that well, that's the thing about green banks that's so tantalizing to me is that I think well-designed, I, I'm still a believer that well-designed green banks can have a big impact. And depending on how you want to define green bank, in this case, um, it's talking about deploying capital largely as loans and loan guarantees. Well, we've had at the federal level a loan guarantee program. And though it has been much maligned 
because of Solyndra and things like that. Um, I think it also did enable a bunch of stuff that might not have happened either. Otherwise, Tesla being one example on the manufacturing side, the first wave of deployments of utility scale solar on the project side. So, you know, maybe it's modeled after that. But I think you're right that some of the Green Bank efforts at the state level, you know, you can make a case that it hasn't been the best way to expend taxpayer dollars. Sometimes the funding goes to projects that that would have otherwise gotten financed anyway. So I think the devil's sort of in the details. And this does not really allude to any details besides saying that it would be modeled after um, a program that was proposed when Jay Inslee was a representative along with uh, Rep. John Dingell, who's passed away now, back in 2009, and on Washington State's own um, Clean Energy Fund, which is their state green bank. But, you know, to me, it all depends on how the green bank is structured and what it actually does. Okay, here's another one. Next generation rural electrification. Yeah, that's an interesting one. I mean, you know, we have largely electrified most of rural America. We did that you know, back in the, I think in the fifties or through the fifties. Um, but you know, major change to those communities, um, from the electricity sector could be kind of disruptive. So I think it's smart to include that in there specifically what they're proposing is to double the finance authority for the rural utility service, which provides low cost financing for, um, rural electric co-ops and things like that. And then the other thing that it proposes here, which is sort of interesting is offering debt relief for rural co-ops to write down or restructure loans from stranded coal plants. That's actually been one of the things that's in a couple of the state 100% clean or renewable energy bills that have been popping up recently is to figure out a way to um, make it such that stranded coal assets don't cause a burden on ratepayers, which I think would be doubly impactful in rural communities. So I think it's smart to have um, to ensure that you're doing something specifically around rural electrification. I think it might be a bit of a misnomer to call it rural electrification because it's not really proposing electrifying unelectrified areas of the country. Rural re-electrification. Um, yeah, maybe that would be the way to put it. I like this energy districts idea, which was modeled on soil conservation districts from the New Deal. This is where local governments partner with the federal government and they get support for... Well, in the original proposal, it was for soil conservation to do something about the Dust Bowl. Um, and, and that program has lived on and it's under mostly state control. But in under Inslee's plan, it would support efficiency and broadband and microgrids and community-oriented energy projects. Uh, again, these are kind of established by state law. They differ state by state. And I really like the local control element to this. The other final piece was the Ag Department's Rural Housing and Business Service, using that to provide efficiency in solar upgrades for rural communities, um, using affordable housing programs to support cleaner solutions. So there's a lot in there to like. So to close, uh, do you think this is going to force the candidates to act differently to talk about this issue in a new way? I think it depends. You know, in lots of presidential primaries, there have been... Uh, sort of marginal single issue candidates, which if if there's never kind of a groundswell of support and increasing polls and donations and so on for Jay Inslee, I think that's where he ends up. And if that's where he ends up, then, you know, every Democratic candidate is going to have a climate change plan. Um, and a few of them have already announced theirs. But I don't know that this plan would change how their plans look 
if if he ends up just sort of staying on the margin. I think if, on the other hand, there is a big groundswell of support for Inslee, he makes it into the debates, you know, it looks like this is an issue that people actually might vote on, then I think it's entirely possible that other candidates feel like they have to um, either come up with a plan that is sort of equally ambitious or at least, uh, you know, more detailed than they otherwise would have. It's just, you know, the the big question is, does Inslee push climate change further toward the forefront of the political discourse during the primary? What do you think? I don't think he does. No, I don't think he does because it already is an issue that a lot of candidates are talking about. The question is what happens if the Green New Deal activists force a more acute conversation about whether they support that plan? They already have, but they're definitely going to work hard to put people on the spot. And I feel like when they get put on the spot, there's an opportunity for them to turn to Inslee's plan and be like, yeah, I mean, I, if, if you want me to support it, like I support this plan. And they can actually say, here are the components that make up something like the Green New Deal. So I don't know. I, I see it influencing that piece of the conversation. Yeah, the Green New Deal part of this is actually pretty interesting because uh, since the introduction of the resolution around the Green New Deal. Now the next step that everybody's been waiting for is is for the Sunrise Movement, the folks who are doing the policy design around this to actually put some real meat on the bone and say, here's what the Green New Deal would mean from a real policy perspective. So assuming that they still do that, there's going to be, you'll be able to compare the specific policy proposal of the Green New Deal against Inslee's plan. And I don't know, it seems to me like Inslee's plan, um, by the way, alludes to and uh, tackles some of the progressive policy issues that the Green New Deal talks about, right? Like some of the the um, right to work, like getting rid of right to work and uh, community investment and like uh, unionization, those kinds of things. It doesn't go so far like the Green New Deal does um, of saying a universal jobs guarantee or anything like that. So if the Green New Deal turns into a real wonky policy document in the way that this is, you know, it'll be interesting to compare them to each other. And then to see, like you said, what the candidates who have endorsed the Green New Deal in principle do about that plan or whether or whether anybody ends up doing what Dave Roberts suggested and just says, like, yeah, I like Inslee's plan. Well, if Inslee's plan is implemented as part of this push for a Green New Deal, um, what kind of job would you want to be retrained for and guaranteed for, Shale? quadrennial industrial reviews are is that a title (laughs) i like that and i'll be the head the director the executive director of arpa ag how about that even though i have no agriculture background i was i was the vice president of the future farmers of america sophomore year in high school so maybe that qualifies me couldn't couldn't quite make it to president (laughs) no with shale khan i am stephen lacy this is the interchange Please follow us on Twitter. We are both there. The Interchange Show is there. Give us a rating and review on Apple, Stitcher, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And word of mouth is still very important for passing on this show. So send a link to your friends and colleagues. Send it out on social media. And let others know about the energy transition. Thanks for joining us. We will catch you next time. Next time.